This is episode 81 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. We're continuing with Men's Roundup 2011 with John Lynch. This is session two, Saturday morning. Good morning, my friends. Uh, I'm going to read a story to you. My, uh, my son, Caleb, is 25. My um, oldest daughter, Amy, is 23. And Carly is 18, and we just uh, took her and uh, drove her out to Azusa Pacific this last weekend, and our home is empty. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you know what? No, not great. Not great. I am so delighted with the influence She's going into biblical studies, and then she wants to go to seminary. And my son is preaching in the church where I've preached all these years, but um, my, my favorite days were when they were all in my home. My gosh, how oh, I miss that. And so I'm reading a story to you that I wrote the first day Carly was born. And I did it for, I put it in a guy's name and put it in a story of a, a boy uh, for a drama piece that we were doing down at the Herberger Theater. And it's about a father bringing his child home. And the first night that that child is at home in his home. Um, so I hope you enjoy it. It's called Tyler. Tyler, son, this is your dad. It's, uh, it's 9.08 on your first night in your own bed at home. You were born yesterday. You're beautiful. All the other babies in the hospital, they look like wrinkled pink lizards. But you're beautiful. You didn't have one of those weird cone heads because mom had a, a, um, a cesarean. I'll explain it to you later, but let's just say mom's a little cranky about it right now. <laughs> well, first, on behalf of your mom and myself, I'd like to welcome you to our family. We're the Bergens. The name's Scottish, I think. One of your ancestors was a shoe tanner, and that's about all I know. Um, don't worry about it. Nobody, my, my grandfather really cares. Um, now listen, I thought, at, um, as your dad, I could give you a little orientation to life. Kind of, you know, let you know what's coming up. I know you'll forget some of it, but we can go over it again later. I just thought I'd hit some of the highlights. Okay, where do I start? This is uh, winter. Better, it's the holidays. It's, it's a great time. More than at any other time, friends and family sit around and talk to each other and make memories and cry and hug and mend old wounds. The whole world just celebrated Christmas yesterday. It also now happens to be your birthday, December 25th. Gift-wise, it would have been better for you to have been born on, like, May 9th or something. <laughs> for about the next year, you really don't have to worry about much. We, uh, we pretty much do it all for you. The only important thing is to let our warm words and hugs go down deep into your heart. Just drink it in. Drink it all in, kid. Learn how to allow yourself to be loved. That's a big one. Learn how to allow yourself to be loved. Most never learn that. Now, after mom stops feeding you her milk, you need to know you're going to be eating some really weird, strained vegetable mush. I'm sorry. It's a rule. There's nothing I can do about it. I have... <laughs> I'll, I'll try and sneak you some tapioca and egg custard on occasion, but I'm in a lot of trouble if anyone finds out. Um, now, listen to me. No matter what, if anyone, a babysitter, a neighbor, a well-intended grandparent tries to feed you any of those jars of pureed meat, you just spit it right back at them. <laughs> Wolves won't eat that stuff. <laughs> All right, now listen to me, son. Your first word should be dada. That's dada. Doesn't that sound nice? Yeah, I mean, if you need anything, you have a problem, any kind of problem, there's another phrase, mama. <laughs> Don't ever tell your mom I told you this, but mama, even in the middle of the night, she'd just get you about anything you ever need. 
Okay, now after you learn to walk and talk, everything's pretty much filler until you discover girls. Um, <laughs> but there are some fairly significant changes that occur to keep life interesting until then. For example, you'll develop an imagination. Uh, it's a great thing if you're careful with it. One night you'll have this dream you can fly, and then you'll have it about every couple of months for the rest of your life. That and a dream about a clown chasing me with a meat cleaver are my two most common dreams. <laughs> You'll also develop an imaginary world where you're a whole lot more popular and famous in, in, than you are in actual life. There's nothing wrong with this, just don't let adults catch you. Uh, my dad once found me in the den wearing a Beatles wig, playing a tennis record and shaking my head, singing eight days a week into a stereo speaker, pretending I was the star of the Beatles, only more famous. He froze and gave me one of those pain parental looks that said, We've been good parents. <laughs> and he turned around and he walked out to this day. We've never talked about it. <laughs> All right. Um, now, around age eight, you're going to hear a sound unlike anything else on the planet. It's the sound of a baseball hitting a bat. You'll have heard it before, but on that one magical day, you'll hear that crack and it will actually turn your head. From that day forth, you'll find friends who will repeat those sounds with you. Even when you're long past the age of playing, you'll take grandkids by the hand to ballparks filled with cigar smoke and loud, obnoxious people just to teach them to recognize that sound. Beautiful above most others. Now, at this age, you'll be able to run. Uh, do it every chance you can. You're given a tiny window of years before running becomes something you're forced to do to stay in shape. <laughs> So while it's fun, run everywhere you can. Run till you're tired and then get up and run some more. It's one of the great, great freedoms of this life. I still sometimes, myself, desire to lace up the shoes and go out and run somewhere. It lasts for about a block. <laughs> now, starting about this age, you're going to probably make friends with some kid that your mom and I don't want you to be with. For maybe the first time, our relationship will be very strained, and you will not understand my concerns, and you'll fight me on it. He'll be the one to try to teach you to smoke or steal or look at wrong pictures of women. I know it sounds weird, but I just don't know anyone who didn't have that experience as a boy. I don't know what to say about this, except that I hope our relationship's strong enough to weather this time and that you won't keep a secret world from me and you'll listen to my heart and not my words when I become afraid and protective for you. And I hope you'll always feel you can come tell me anything, anything, even if you're ashamed, even if you got trapped doing something that is so embarrassing. No matter what you get into, please, son, listen to me. I'll never go away from you. I'll never reject you. All right, as you, uh, as you get older, other things are going to change. For example, in the course of a week, you'll go from liking nice, wholesome music to something that resembles the sound of animals having their fur combed with a hot fire poker. <laughs> One day, you'll have a nice collection of catchy, happy music. The next day, you'll walk in with a CD entitled Rat Dungeon and the Cold of the Poison Snake Sisters with their hit single, Bleed the Badger Mama. <laughs> I can remember bringing home an album by The Doors, and my parents began to talk at mealtime about military academies. <laughs> then, um, one day in this season of life, you're going to hear this voice. Hi, Tyler. I missed the bus. Can I get a ride home with you? Oh, mother of mercy. <laughs> and you will turn to look at her, and time will almost stop as inside you a blur of new emotions and sensations will leave you stunned. This is called falling in love. You will lose the ability in that moment to put together a sentence of speech and will instead <laughs> stammer and mumble out monosyllabic grunts that make no sense. In trying to explain what you meant, you bury yourself even deeper. Well, you know, I, f f for one, er, what's the old saying? Uh, well, there you go. <laughs> Till you are reduced to a smiling, geeky ball of helpless goo. <laughs> now, from that moment on, everything changes. You'll begin to bathe. Uh,
You'll change your clothing more frequently and alter bad habits like spitting and finishing sentences with, like to make me puke. You'll gladly trade Friday night driving through people's lawns with the boys for a date at an overnight overpriced cutesy ice cream store just for the chance that one of those times you get to kiss her at the end of the evening. And this will go on for some time and you'll think life will never have sadness again and that somehow from all humans you've been chosen as a test case to never feel anything but bliss. <laughs> These will be some of the most innocently delightful days of your life. And then she will leave. She will meet an older guy in her Spanish class, and soon she'll talk to you about being just friends. And the last time she goes out that door will be a sound that you will remember for the rest of your life. And you, um, you will feel pain. Your entire being will go numb to every sound and feeling around you except the pain of the silence after the closing of that door. It's a silence that will drown out every other sound. You'll wander around on a bicycle at night wanting to hear something but hearing only a voice, one so beautiful, now cruelly haunting its repetition. Hi, Tyler, I missed the bus. Can I get a ride home with you? Hi, Tyler, I missed the bus. Can I... Oh, gosh, kid, I wish I could protect you from this pain, but nobody can. It's the price of having given your heart to someone, and how you respond to that period of time will affect everything that follows, and I will only be able to say what you will not want to hear. Continue to open your heart to love. Real love will, after all things, prevail. <laughs> okay, what else? Um, I've always had really bad body odor after I've eaten pastrami. Uh, it maybe it's just me, but it's something to think about. Don't leave any of my uh, tools in the rain, please. Um, what else? Righty tidy, lefty loosey. Uh, uh, I before E, except uh, when it's not. Uh, now, as you grow up, some sometime you should drive or walk across the country along back roads of towns that don't have McDonald's. Ask questions of older people. Make friends, not just those who can do things for you, but those who can offer you nothing. Value close friends as more important than money. Play a musical instrument. We'd appreciate it if it wasn't the drums. <laughs> Don't pick a career for money. There are many miserable people in the world, but the most miserable are those who got wealthy by compromising their integrity to get it. What else? Stay away from people who use humor to hurt others. Be kind. Kid, be kind. I can't say that well enough. And, 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 when, and when you start purchasing gifts for me, don't get me ties or soap on a rope. <laughs> Just make me a card. Write your heart to me. All right. Now listen, as you get older and life has settled in after you have a home and a career and a, have you cemented your political views and music tastes, I have this fear for you that you will become secretly afraid of life that you'll feel an overwhelming sense of despair and that you'll read the papers and feel helpless and empty and alone. All the people on this earth are exposed to it. It's a time of when the dreams of what was supposed to happen have faded and life's reduced to protecting what you have from a randomly appearing cruel world. And you'll find yourself alone one night, pressured, feeling unappreciated with too much time to think, sitting over a cup of coffee in an all-night restaurant, trying to stay awake for a long night, a long drive home, and you're going to ask yourself, what has this all been about? Why didn't someone tell me life can get so sad, so tedious? And I guess maybe that's why I'm telling you these things tonight, kid, because life will get sad and scary and lonely and painful and tiresome. But there's something else I need to tell you. I'm not even sure how to tell you in a way you can understand, but you must know it's the most important thing I could possibly say to you. I'll, I will say it for one way or another for the rest of your life. Tyler, there was someone else born on your birthday a long time ago. Inside a stable in another part of the world, right around this time of year, an event happened that changed everything. A, a, a little baby was born. I imagine that he looked a little bit like you. His name was His name was Jesus. 
He was a little baby boy, but he was God also. And that's right, God. How do I explain that? Um, Okay, let me back up for a second. Uh, Some throughout your life, people are going to tell you that we just sort of came to be gradually over time. That we started out as lint or something and then moved... (laughs) moved into single-celled amoebas and then toaster ovens and then then came the Norwegians and uh, <laughs> then finally man. Um, <laughs> it takes a lot of faith to believe that theory. Uh, <laughs> your dad believes there's someone who loves us more than we love ourselves and that he created man. And as you grow up, you're going to have to decide if you believe this. More than anything in this world, your mom and dad hope you put your trust in this Jesus. He is the most, he is the most um, wonderful person you'll ever, ever know. I love you so much, I can't imagine anyone loving you more, but he does. He knows everything about you, and he still loves you deeply. I know there's going to come a time when belief in Jesus is going to be mocked by almost everyone important to you, and that's the time when you're going to have to decide for yourself if what I have taught you is true. Anyway, back to that cup and coffee in the all-night restaurant. You will have run out of answers, out of optimism, out of belief in yourself, out of belief in things working out if you just try hard enough and you look upon a world that seems strange and mean and foreign and you're going to just try to cover up and go on. Don't do that, my son. Listen to me, Tyler. There'll never be a time when you run so far from him that he cannot hear you call. He will watch and wait as a perfect father for the day you ask for his love, for his presence, for his forgiveness. And he will run. He will run. He will run. He will run. You see, that's the other part of the story that won't make sense much now, but it might later. If I knew I could save your life by having my take, and I actually think I'd consider I love you that much already. And that's what he did for us, that there was a God in the universe who knew my name, who loved me more than I could love me. He didn't do it for his own child, but for the race who wanted nothing to do with him, a race that would put him on a cross to suffer and die, to bleed out. That cross turned out to be the place where everything we ever did out of greed or fear or anger or selfishness was absolutely and totally and completely forgiven. All that awaits is your trust in this one who grew up to die in your place. Well, that's the precious miracle of Christmas, my son, your birthday. I think I've said enough for one night. There's a lot more I want to explain to you, but we'll have many walks, many mornings on a boat in the middle of a quiet pond to deal with that. Tomorrow night, maybe we do this again, huh? I've got some ideas on how to get bagels into the toaster without ripping them up. (laughs) I love you, little lamb. Jesus loves you. Good night. Thank you, guys. Man, man, oh man. I did not know that... Um, I've read this story so many times that I'm... Whew, uh, just because of where my little girl is gone, it just n- n- nailed me. Genesis 3.10, if you'd turn there in your Bibles. You know the story. They eat the fruit. First the woman, because if it had been a man, it would have taken steak. I'm pretty certain of it. We'd go, apple? Probably not, no. A lot of pain could have been avoided. uh, But a well-cooked steak? Yeah, well, sure. And again, I'm reading out of the NIV when I say that. So, the eyes of them, verse 7, were both open. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. And the Lord called to the man and said, knowing full well where he was, Hey, where are you? And he said, listen to this, I heard the sound of you in the garden, I was afraid because I was naked, so I, was, I hid myself. 
I was afraid, first time you'd ever felt fear, because I was naked, the first time you'd ever felt the experience of what nakedness was, even though he'd been naked the whole time. And so I didn't know what to do. I, I, I couldn't stand that feeling, that experience. It felt shameful. It felt wrong for the very first time. And I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And a stone drops into an infinite pool and it, in concentric circles, works its way all the way through human history and its DNA spreads all the way to you and to me. On that day, Adam initiates a horrible legacy. It's the first time that a man looks over his shoulder. It's the first time that anyone's eyes dart or, or any, anyone covers. And now me, now you, when we get afraid, when I get embarrassed or exposed or do something or something's done to me that convinces me that I'm not enough or don't match up, I hide. It's built into our DNA. As early as we can remember, we've performed for acceptance. If I'm good enough, talented, beautiful, together, competent, right enough, I'll be loved and accepted and happy. And if not, I'll be pitied and patronized and rejected and live a second-class life. You know what it is? It's a Santa Claus is coming to town theology. Right? We created Santa Claus because we couldn't handle God. Truth is, we can't handle Santa Claus. <laughs> we make him old jolly and chubby and sassy, but the truth is the guy's a controlling legalist with almost unlimited power. <laughs> oh, you better watch out. <laughs> you better not cry. You better not shout. Let me tell you why. The big man. Santa Claus, he's a coming to town. He's making a stinking list. Checking it twice. He will. Oh, he will find out who's naughty. Will you stand, sir? Yeah. <laughs> and who's nice? And oh, this controlling, omniscient legalist, he's coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. <laughs> Which in my book is wrong. <laughs> I don't care if you're old, jolly, and sassy. I don't want you watching me while I'm sleeping. Thank you. <laughs> and your worth is on how much you do right and how little you do wrong. And he's always writing stuff down and he's going to find you out. And this omniscient controlling legalist, he's coming to town, so you'd better watch out. You'd better fear this guy. You'd better stop sniveling. You'd better not pout. You'd better put on a good face and act like you're someone better than who you actually happen to be. Dance better. Put on a good show. Just be better than who you are, for goodness sake. Don't be a whiner. Fix yourself. Try harder. Do more. Be better. Don't have so many problems. Watch over your shoulder. Get better in a hurry. And if you can, at least bluff like you are. Because you're constantly on trial. If you want good things to happen to your life, you better figure out how to keep this guy happy. And it's genetically wired into us. We learn early on how to perform. And the highest value is being accepted. And the means of acceptance is right appearance. And therein lies the problem, because I failed. Another result of the fall, no one feels like me. Mine feels weirder and more shameful. And so I live with this secret awareness of just how poorly I'm doing, how little I've grown. I feel unfit, unworthy, unlovable. Shh, I'm naked. And so no one must know. I must mask myself with enough reason to be loved. I must brag and put others down and act healthier and idealize myself and posture and compete and bluff and keep a smile on and avoid rejection or correction and justify and rationalize and hide the real me. And in the midst of that comes the gospel. Here's Jesus running to me. He, God, 2 Corinthians 5.21 He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, had never experienced in any way sin. Who, he actually made him be sin, 
be my sin, be our collective sin, all the sin of mankind, he became, he wore it, and he didn't hide. He took it straight on, took all of me, all my sin, my God who in innocence had never touched any of it, had never known the pain of looking over your shoulder or the darkness of hiding. And he takes on all my crap. He became my sin for this purpose so that he could clothe me in righteousness. So that he could make me become the righteousness of God in him. We're clothed in righteousness by the willingness of God to become naked and suffer our penalty. He took the shame. He took the nakedness. And so the pattern gets broken. A new wiring fills my circuit. I believe it. We dare to start to believe that we're lovable just because he chooses to love us. We're delighted in, holy and righteous. We begin believing that he actually created us lovable. See, here's the lie we've been taught. That up until the moment that you ask, ask Jesus in your heart, that he does not like you. You are a miserable, worthless sinner who he disdains. It's like the scene's going on in heaven. Oh, no, 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 no. Angel, stop him. Lynch is going to pray the prayer. No, I don't like him. Oh, he prayed the prayer. Oh, gosh, okay, you're in. <laughs> but I don't like you. I've never liked you. I ought to be, uh, I love you, but I don't like you. And there will be no patting on the armrest in your chair in heaven. I'm telling you that much right now. Just stay out of my way. No, the truth is he made me exactly who he wanted. He wanted there to be a John Lynch on this planet at this time, exactly the way I look. With all my weaknesses, with my feet turning out and my weird head of wheat. <laughs> he only had to break through the chasm of sin separation and this radically remakes us. Then something happens. I don't know. Maybe you go through a season where you don't experience his love as much and you feel dry or maybe feel you fail God in some way that you thought you'd never do again. And suddenly, subtly, gradually, like uh, smoke, it slips back under the door. The lie reawakens. You begin to presume that a sense of his absence or bad circumstances must be due to his displeasure with you. And so the cycle starts back up. You'll shore things up. You'll straighten the magazines. You'll set some standards. You'll get serious about your behaviors. You'll polish things up, and then the river will flow again. And one of these times, you're going to come to the fork in the road where this finally gets dealt with once and for all. A crossroads. You'll be walking along in your Christian life, just one path, and then suddenly, suddenly boom! right in front of you, giant pole, giant crossroads with two arrows pointing down two different paths. I, I don't get it. I'm, I was just, what is this? But from here on in, you will see two different paths, and it will never be the same. And one arrow will say, pleasing God. And the other will say, trusting God. And you'll think, I don't want to choose. Those are both great. But there you are, from now on in, this will be the initial motivation, the primary motivation of your heart for how you'll live out the rest of your life. So you look at trusting God and go, hmm, hmm. Not much for me to do there. Um, okay, thank you, stay right there. And then you look at this pleasing God. Yeah, 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 that must be it. I mean, like, after all he's done for me, I want to please him. It's the least I can... Yes, this has got to be it. Maybe this has all come to this moment so I'd finally sell out and let go of that and take this. Yes. So I start down the road, pleasing God. And I walk the path for a long, long way. Hours. Hours. Off in the distance, I see a building way way off two and a half hours i walk and finally i can see there's words written on the top of the building 
So I get closer, another couple minutes, it says, striving hard to be all God wants me to be. Yeah, yes, sounds like the army, be all you can be, that, this is it. I'm on the right path, finally I've done it. So I keep going and I can see that there's a door and there's a doorknob on that door and another five minutes of walking and I can see that it says written across it, two words, right on top of the doorknob, right above it. The two words are self-effort. And I go, yeah, finally someone's saying it the way it is. I mean, after, after all he's done, I gotta do my part. I mean, that's in scripture. God helps those who help themselves. It's, that's in there. Underneath Malachi or something somewhere, tucked in there. And I think this is it. This is what these are the sold out people of God. And so I take my hand under the doorknob and go, and I walk in. Huge room, cacophony of voices, thousands of people in this room, giant room. And I don't notice as I'm standing there just stunned that right behind me is a hostess who walks around and then comes right up to me and says in a voice upon further reflection that sounds a little slick, a little oily. She says, hi. Welcome to the room of good intentions. And I say, hey, man, this is so great. This, thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, how's everybody doing? And this room that was just really loud gets all of a sudden really quiet, and no one says anything. How, <clears throat> how's everybody doing? And one guy steps forward. We're doing fine. <laughs> yeah, we're fine as fine can be. That's who we are. We're, aren't we, Jerry, Carlos, Debbie, Bob? We're fine. That's right, couldn't be better. We're liquid, a kind of a sense of our own convergence within a corporate uh, duality in a non-productive economy. We're fine, we're just doing fine. Everybody, everybody's fine here, Tiger, right back at you. Thank, thank you, thank you for asking. I'm thinking, well, that's odd, um, but they're fine. And, and uh, then she says to me, and how are you doing? And I say, well, um, Thank you so much for asking. I mean, I've, I've been really struggling with some stuff, and I, but I, now that I think that I'm here, the thing, and she does this, and she pulls from behind a mask and motions for me to put it on. I'm thinking, I don't know, I don't know. But then I look at the mask, and it looks very much like everybody else who's in that room. And they're all looking at me going, So I take the mask and shh, and I say, I'm fine, I'm doing fine. You're in the room of good intentions. And after a while I see that there's a giant banner written across the wall in the back that says this, working on my sin to achieve an intimate relationship with God, yes. Yes, that's exactly right. See, because, see, that's so dead on. Working hard on my sin to achieve an intimate relationship with God because I got to tell you, I, 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 mean, I mean, early on, early on, Jesus and I were so close, but over time I kept failing and messing things up and doing things that I said I wouldn't do and not doing the things that I said I was supposed to do. And eventually, gradually, there became this mound between us, this, this, this large, pussy, hot, steamy mound of wet cat food that had dried with mayonnaise wrapped around it and, and garbage and cat bones and fish and just garbage. And Jesus was further and further over there the larger that pile got. And now recently it has seemed like he's over on the other side shaking his head with his arms folded thinking, I have so much hope for that kid. He's disappointed me so many times. I don't want to hear it, and I want to yell at him. This time it's going to be different. You watch, you see, it's going to be different. But he's shaking his head like, I don't want to hear it anymore. You've so disappointed me. That's what I imagine. Except he's so far away that he probably can't even hear me talking. 
And what nobody tells me about that mound, that mound of stuff, there's two things that they don't tell me. One, that there's truckloads more of it being brought in each day. And the other part that they don't tell me is that I'm kidding myself. There's not a thing I can do to make that mound smaller. You're in the room of good intentions. Oh, and this room has got sincerity and perseverance and courage and diligence and full-hearted fervency and sold-out determination, the pursuit of excellence. Yes, this is it. I'm going to make him so happy. One day we're going to be so close, but weeks turn into months, and I notice many here sound cynical, and they look tired. And the conversations are superficial and guarded, and if you catch them when no one thinks they're looking, there's deep, lonely pain in their faces. And I'm starting to think different, too. I'm no longer as relaxed. I've got this nagging anxiety. If I don't behave, if I don't control my sin enough, I'm going to be on the outs with everyone in this room and probably with God, too. So I invest effort into sitting less. And I do. I feel better for a while. But despite all my striving and sincerity, I keep sinning. Some days I get so fixated on trying not to sin, I can't do enough. I never seem to make it through my list. I never feel like I've done enough. It feels like I'm making every effort to please a God who never seems pleased enough. And gradually the path of pleasing God is turning into, what must I do to keep God pleased? When we, re, when we embrace this theology... We reduce godliness to a really stupid formula. More right behavior plus less wrong behavior equals godliness. And the only problem with it, it has to improve to get up to heresy. Yeah, I didn't mumble. Because it disregards the godliness and righteousness that God has already placed in us because of the cross. Yes, we mature in godliness, but if we disregard the righteousness that's already ours from trust, we're set up, set up to live in hiddenness. We can never resolve our sin by working on it. We may change the behaviors for a while, like moving the deck chairs around on the Titanic, but when we strive to sin less, we don't. It causes us to lose hope. It keeps us immature. And even though this theology has been breaking our hearts and though it's let us down a thousand times, we keep desperately hoping this time we'll be able to control and stop our bad habits and sins by, by enough sincerity and willpower eventually. Yeah, I, I, I can't breathe in here, and I want to tell somebody, but nobody wants to hear about it. Nobody wants to talk to me. So even though I'm pretty sure that this is, um, this is the only chance I have to make it, this room was supposed to be the place. I walk out. And I'm devastated now. I go back onto the path and I walk all the way back to the crossroads and I am devastated. What now? How do I do this life? And that's when I look over the trusting God sign. Trusting God. Is there a third path? And hearing nothing, I start walking. Same thing, a couple hours. I walk, and I walk, and I walk, and I see a building. And it has words on it. Another 15 minutes, I get close enough to see the words, and it says this. Living out of who God says I am. Well, there's one word right after another. What does that mean? That means nothing. Living out of who God says I am. And I keep walking. I get closer and I get closer. And there's a door with a doorknob. And this time the doorknob has one word written on it. The word is humility. And finally, I, I snap. I break down because I've been trying so hard, so stinking hard. I can't! I can't do it! If anything, God, anything at all good's going to happen to me, you're going to have to do it! 
You're stronger, more powerful, more able. You love me more. Help me, help me. Help me. And I walk into this room. Again, thousands of people, huge sound of noise, and I don't notice that there's a hostess behind me here too, and she walks up behind me and says, in maybe the most beautiful voice I've ever heard, she says, hi. Welcome to the room of grace. And I say, hi. And she says, because she's so cool. Listen to what she says. She says, so how are you doing? And I say, fine. (laughs) Kind of fine. Who wants to know? And then I look out at the room, and everybody's quiet in this room. Well, now I'm mad. I'm really mad because I feel rejected. I feel condemned here. And so finally, I yell out, all right, listen. Hey, 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 everybody. Hey, 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 listen up. I'm doing not fine. Not fine at all. I haven't been fine for a long time. I'm tired and confused and afraid. I feel guilty and lonely. I'm sad most of the time. I can't seem to make my life work. I'm so far behind and befuddled about what to do next. It leaves me frozen. And if any of you knew half my daily thoughts, you'd want me out of your little room. So there. Hey, hey, hey. I'm doing not fine. Thanks for asking. I think I'll leave now. And just as I've got my hand on the doorknob, there is a voice from way, way, way back in the room that yells out, That's it? That's all you got? I'll take your confusion and guilt and bad thoughts and raise your compulsive sin and chronic lower back pain. Oh, and I'm in debt up to my ears and I wouldn't know classical music from a show tune if it jumped up and bit me. You better get more than that little list if you want to play in my league, buddy. And the hostess leans over and says, I think he means you're welcome here. You're in the room of grace, 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 a hundred and twenty-two times in the New Testament. Oh, you can't say it except for in Scottish or Irish, for this is the manner in which God speaks. (laughs) Grace, and the Judaizers hated it, Romans 5 through 8. You dare teach them this because they'll take advantage of they'll do Christianity light. They will they'll live half-hearted lights. You've got to, these people are vermin. You've got to keep them under your thumb. You've got to keep challenging them and really beating them up and be rough with themselves. Because Paul, I know these people. And Paul says to the Judaizers, um, hey, thank you so much for your kind words. <laughs> Again, out of the NIV. <laughs> And you would have a point, Judaizers, except for these two things, Romans 5 through 8. One, these ones that you're talking about, these vermin, they have a new nature. They're new creations. They don't want to get away with anything. Oh, and by the way, they have the Holy Spirit, uh, God inside them, who is able to exhort them and rebuke them, encourage them and stand with them. See, you guys, if... If you want compliance, you can get that anyway. Grace, law, moralism, Buddhism, anything you want. You, 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 want, you want compliance, but if you want heartfelt obedience that wants to obey from the heart, I take grace. I take grace. I wrote this piece a long time ago that I call the New Testament gamble. And it's simply God saying, I'm putting it all on the line. I'm turning all the cards over. What if I tell them who they are? What if I take away any element of fear and condemnation, judgment or rejection? What if I tell them that I love them and I'll always love them, that I can't love them any more than I love them right now and that I love them right now no matter what they've done as much as I love my only son? That there's nothing they can do to make my love go away. What if I told them there are no lists? What if I told them they were righteous with my righteousness right now? What if I told them they could stop beating themselves up, that they could stop being so weird and formal and stiff and jumpy around me? What if I told them I was absolutely crazy about them on their worst day? 
What if I told them that even if they ran to the ends of the earth and did the most horrible, unthinkable things and killed me and were unfaithful in their marriage, and when they came back, I'd receive them with tears and a party? What if I told them that I don't keep a, a log of past offenses of how little they pray or how often they've let me down or made promises they don't keep? What if I told them they don't have to be owned by any men's religious additions or traditions? What if I told them if I'm their savior, they're going to heaven no matter what, it's a done deal? What if I told them that they had a new nature, that they were saints, not saved sinners who should now buck up and be better if you were any kind of a Christian, that's all he's done for you? What if I told them that I actually live in them now? That I've put my love and power and nature inside them at their disposal? What if I told them they didn't ever have to put on a mask, that it was absolutely exactly okay with me to be who they are at this moment with all their junk and not pretend about how close we are, how much they pray or don't, how much Bible they read or don't? What if they knew that they don't ever have to look over the shoulder for fear if things get too good, the other shoe's going to drop? What if they knew that I will never, ever, 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 use the word punish in relation to them? What if they knew that when they mess up, I never get back at them? What if they were convinced of bad circumstances are not my way of evening the score for taking advantage of me? What if they knew the basis of our friendship was not on how little they sin, but on how much they let me love them? What if they had permission to stop trying to impress me in any way? What if I, they told them that they could hurt my heart, but I'd try to never hurt theirs? What if I told them I kind of like Eric Clapton's music too? That the these and thous have always concerned me. That I've never really liked the Christmas handbell deal with the white gloves. What if I told them they could open their eyes when they pray and still go to heaven? What if I told them there was no secret agenda, no trap door? What if I told them it wasn't about their self-effort, but allowing me to live my life through them? That's the New Testament gamble, and we're the guinea pig test. Does it work? And my kids were eight and four and one when I wrote this. And I said, Father, please, 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 let this limb hold. And now all three of them love Jesus more sweetly and dearly than I do. And they don't have a double life and they don't play games with him and they dream big for him. Amen. Grace, grace. Yes. Hebrews 11 says, without Faith, pistos, the noun form of trust. Without trust, it is absolutely impossible to please God. Without trust, it is impossible to please God. For if all I bring, it's an incredibly good desire pleasing God. It just can't be my primary motivation because it'll imprison my hearts. For if all I bring to God is my moral striving to please him by solving my sin, I'm back at the same square that put me in need of salvation. I'm stuck with my talents, desire, ability, longing, chutzpah, diligence, and resolve to make it happen. Pleasing is not a means to our godliness. It's the fruit of our godliness because it's the fruit of trust. Well, in this room too, there's a banner in the back. And it says this, standing with God with my sin in front of us, working on it together. What if, um, what if because of the shed blood of Jesus, that Jesus for the believer is never over there in your sin between us? What if the blood was that powerful that instead he walked all the way around that sin and stands right in front of me and makes that smile that no other human can make. And then he puts his hands on my shoulders and looks into my eyes and won't take his eyes off me. And he's smiling. And he says, I know, kid, I know. I've known from before the world began. I'm not mad. I'm not ashamed. I'm crazy about you. And then he strokes my hair and then he puts his arms around me in a bear hug, in the tightest bear hug. And at first I want to fight it because I don't feel worthy. I shouldn't be doing this. It shouldn't be happening. But then after a while, I don't want it to stop. I so much want him to hold me. And he holds me for the longest time and he keeps saying, I'm crazy about you. I love you so much, kid. I got your back. I've known about this before the world began. And only after he's convinced that I believe him does he let go of his grip only to put his arm around me. And then we look at my sin together. 
I imagine him saying, <clears throat> wow, <laughs> my, my, my. <laughs> Whew, that is a lot of sin. <laughs> man, oh man, don't you ever sleep? <laughs> and then he would say, and we'll deal with it when you're ready, kid. I got your back. I'm crazy about you. Now, this is why they call it good news. It is that stinking good. It is time to stop playing the religious lie. Now, not everybody, I got to tell you, this is, this is, um, this is the sad news. Not everybody stays in the room of grace once they enter, for not only must you believe that you're accepted, you've got to learn to accept the yokels who are already here and who ever enter each week. And they're goofy and odd and flawed and failed and inappropriate. Oh, every now and then a presentable one slips in, but he usually soon discovers his shtick is a mask, and he too must learn to rest in the sufficiency of Christ, or he'll soon go back to where appearances make the man. And now you guys... When you think you don't belong, when you think if these guys really knew who I was, if you think I've got to keep my game face going because I know what's inside of me, and you think that they will reject me and that my God would reject me if I ever admitted what was really true about me, maybe one of this awesome group of men, maybe someone really close to you, maybe the person sitting next to you will say, that's all you got? It will be their way of saying, my brother, my dear, precious, cleansed brother, you're welcome here. 